God is. The eternal, independent, and self-existent being. The being whose purposes and actions spring from himself without foreign motive or influence. He who is absolute in dominion, the most pure, the most simple, the most spiritual of all essences, infinitely perfect and eternally self-sufficient, needing nothing that he has made, illimitable in his immensity, inconceivable in his mode of existence, and indescribable in his essence. He's known fully only by himself because an infinite mind can only be fully comprehended by itself. In a word, a being who from his infinite wisdom cannot err or be deceived, and from his infinite goodness can do nothing but what is eternally right and just and kind. In that quote, Adam Clark is trying to describe an indescribable God. <laughs> and he takes a pretty good pass at it, if you ask me. uses a lot of big words, but I think the word indescribable right at the center of that quote is perhaps the best description of God. He is indescribable. If it sounds familiar, it was featured in the book we read this fall, The Life Without Lack by Dallas Willard. And it seemed like a fitting way to open this new series titled, God Is. You see, God is a lot of things to a lot of people. There's a lot of different ways that people finish that sentence, that God is. And there's a word cloud that is the, sort of the guiding image of the series. I came across that several years ago on social media. It captivated my attention for some time. I love the way it finishes those sentences in a number of different ways. And throughout this series, we're going to explore different elements of His nature, whether in some of those phrases or other phrases. We're not constrained to that because He's not constrained to that. And so as we look at his nature, as we look at his character, we're not departing from our annual theme of the kingdom of God. If you've noticed, every series so far has had kingdom in it in some form or fashion, meaning every sermon title has had kingdom at the front and center. Because as we talk about this God who is and we talk about how this God is, we're describing the king. We're describing the king over the kingdom. When we talk about the kingdom of God, he is the king, and we are his subjects. And so there will be some doctrine, and there will be some theology, and there will be a lot of scripture. Today is no exception. We'll start together, and if you get tired of the Bible gymnastics, that's okay. Just set your Bible down and look and listen. Every scripture will be on the screen. Take some notes, maybe, of those that you want to refer back to. But don't let theology, and that word sometimes gets a bad rap, don't let theology intimidate you. Sometimes you go, oh, that's just theology, or I've heard the phrase theological mumbo-jumbo. Anybody ever used that one? You see, theology is really quite important. Theology is literally the study of God. Whenever you hear ology, it's the study of something. So biology is the study of bios or life. Theology is the study of God, the Greek word theos, plus the Greek word logia, which means to study, and you get theology. And so I observed that this is perhaps the longest standing ology, that theology in some form or fashion has been taking place since the garden. 
Since they walked with God in the cool of the day and perhaps Adam and Eve began to study the character and nature of God and to think reflectively about that. It's also the greatest ology of all, the one that matters most to each and every one of us, and perhaps the most important ology. The most important thing that we could give our time and attention to is God himself, this God who is. In fact, A.W. Tozer, the famous preacher and writer, wrote that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And so you can personalize that. I can personalize that for you, that what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Everything else is somewhat irrelevant or at least second tier compared to that. Now, another favorite author of mine, C.S. Lewis, took issue with this idea, not with A.W. Tozer's quote specifically, because I don't think he had said it yet, but he took issue with the idea that what we think about God is of supreme importance, and he would say how God thinks of us is infinitely more important than what we think of God. And I would sort of straddle the fence and say, I think you're both right. <laughs> I think they're both critically important. And I would say that if God doesn't think about us, then what we think about Him is pretty irrelevant. But because He does, and because He created us for a relationship with Him, not just a religion where we're trying to do more to get more, but where we're in relationship with Him, like the song we just said, you know, to break down the walls of our religion, the thing that hems us in and keeps us from relating to God relationally. Sometimes religion gets in the way of a relationship with God. He wants to be in relationship with us. So, because He thinks about us, as the psalmist said, who am I? And what, are, what is man that you would even be mindful of us? But God is mindful of us. And because he thinks about us, what we think about him really matters. And because he has granted us free will to respond to his revelation, he revealed himself. He didn't have to do that. He could have just let the world go on, not aware of him. But he chose to reveal himself to the very first people. He chose to reveal himself throughout history, not just biblical history. But we have accounts in biblical history of God revealing himself to people. And so how we respond matters. And because he gave us free will, what we think about him, what we think of God is critical. And so today we're going to start this sermon series off with a message titled, God is Alive. This seemed like a really important place to start. And three times in that Adam Clark quote, he refers to God as a being. He exists. He is. And this sermon series is all about understanding this God who is. He exists, he is alive, and he is eternal. Think about it this way. He will never not be. He has never not been. He is now. He has been forever. He will be forever. He is alive. He is living and active. And without this truth, all the other things that we say about him would be diminished. But because of this truth, because he is alive, everything else we say about him matters even more. He is the only king forever. He is a living God. He is an eternal God of eternal people. 
Not a dead God of dead people, but a, an eternal God of eternal people, a living God of those who he has created who will live forever. And when he revealed himself to Moses, the name he gave for himself powerfully reinforced this element of his nature. So that's where we're going to start today. If you want to open your Bibles, if you need one of ours, you can grab one of the blue hardcover Bibles, page 91, in those seats in front of you. You can open up to that. Otherwise, Exodus chapter 3, verses 14 and 15 is where we're going to begin. The setting here is that Moses is standing before the burning bush. A little backstory on Moses. He was born into slavery in Egypt, and at the time, all the little boys were supposed to be thrown in the river, and so eventually Moses made his way into the river. He was saved by the providential hand of God, we believe, and brought into Pharaoh's household. And through a strange set of circumstances, he was able to be raised by his own mother as a wet nurse, so to speak, until he was able to join Pharaoh's household. And he grew up in Pharaoh's household. He grew up in the pagan system where there was a God of everything. There was a God of the sun and a God of the harvest and a God of the water and a God of this and a God of that. And whatever your problem was, you prayed to the God of that thing and hoped that something good would come of it. But then as Moses reaches adulthood through a, another set of circumstances, he finds himself fleeing from Egypt or in some sense escaping from Egypt. And he has this encounter with God. God reveals himself to Moses in a burning bush and says, Moses, you're going to go back to Egypt and you're going to bring my people out of Egypt. And so in that conversation, Moses says, so when I get there and I tell them that God sent me, what name should I give for the God who sent me? And here is how God responds. In verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. And this is a powerful, powerful concept of the nature and character of God, that when he reveals himself and attaches a name to himself, the name that he gives has to do with eternal existence. I am who I am. And if you notice in your Bible, I know in my Bible, there's like a little footnote that directs our attention to the bottom of the page where some explanation is given. And this phrase, I am who I am, can just as literally or correctly be translated, I will be who I will be. Not only am I eternally present, but I will be eternally present. I have been eternally present. And in the next phrase there, he says, Tell the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. So this is what Moses is supposed to tell them. So he shortens I am who I am to I am or I will be. It's just as correct to translate that phrase, I will be, that word, I will be. This is the Hebrew word Yahweh, the name that God gave for himself, Yahweh, I am who I am. I will be who I will be. And guess what? It's not just eternal presence. It's that I will be with you. Not just existence, but presence with you. He's just told Moses in verse 12 that I am with you and I will be with you. And when you go before Pharaoh and when you go back to the people of Israel and you bring them out, I will be with you. Now, the English Standard Version Study Bible, which is a tremendous resource, if you're looking for a good study Bible, I highly recommend it. It has four nuances of the meaning of Yahweh, I am who I am. And those four 
nuances are, first, that God is self-existent. He's not dependent on anything else. I am who I am, eternally self-sufficient, self-existent, not dependent on anything else, not created by or acted upon by anything else. Second, He's the creator and sustainer of all exists because nothing created Him. Everything that exists and everything that we can see is created by God and sustained by God. The third one is that he is immutable in his character. How many of you have used immutable in the last week? Nobody. <laughs> Theological mumbo-jumbo at its finest, right? Immutable means he doesn't change. His character does not change. He doesn't evolve over time. Not only is he eternal, but he has always been the same for eternity. And third, he is eternal in his existence. Now, you take those four together, he's self-existent, he's the creator and sustainer of all that exists, he's immutable in his character and eternal in his existence. It sounds an awful lot like the Adam Clark quote we started with, doesn't it? It made me wonder if maybe Adam Clark was the source for this English Standard Version study Bible. He, he was around before it was, so it's possible. But as we move forward in this short passage that we're going to look here in Exodus chapter 3, we see that God wasn't finished. He also said to Moses in verse 15, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. You see, they understood Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They understood that they interacted with the one true God. And before, they had called him El or Elyon or Adonai. But now God is saying, I am who I am. I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Of those three generations, this is my name for all generations going forward, even this generation. Think about that. Thousands of years ago, God is speaking to Moses from this burning bush. He's saying, this is what I'm to be called. And here we are, thousands of years later, thousands of miles away. And we still refer to God by this name. You see, God's name doesn't change because God doesn't change. And this name, I believe, was meant to be a reminder of not just who God is, but that God. And so I want to take you on a little journey through the New Testament because Jesus spoke about this very passage in his ministry, and he said some very important things about God and his relationship to God, being God himself during his ministry here on earth. So if you fast forward to the New Testament, Jesus teaches on this passage in Matthew and in Mark. We're going to look at Mark chapter 12, verse 26 and 27. And this was one of many times when the Pharisees and the Sadducees, two religious sort of leader, uh, leadership uh, sects, S-E-C-T-S, groups of religious leaders that had various theologies and ways of understanding God and various doctrines, and they're fighting with each other about whether people are going to be married in heaven or not. And, and they bring this question to Jesus sort of to test him. And Jesus responds in this way. He says, Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the bush, how God told him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. 
you are badly mistaken. And so what he's saying here is that we are not following a dead God of dead people, but that he is the eternal living God of eternal people. He is the faithful, covenant-keeping God of the living. And his point is that they, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, will continue to exist and will be raised in eternity and spend eternity with God. And God is saying, yes, he's an eternal God. He is a living God. He is the God of the living. Now, if we continue this journey through the New Testament on this subject, in John chapter 8, verses 58 and 59, again, another showdown with the Pharisees, another toe-to-toe with the Pharisees who held Abraham in the highest regard. Now, you think of it as a children's song. Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had, right? You know that song. Well, this was, that's just like a microcosm of how the, Israel, the nation of Israel related to Father Abraham. They literally held him as their father. They traced their lineage all the way back up. Anybody else can do that? Ancestry.com? No? They held Abraham in very high regard. So when Jesus says in verse 58 and 59 of John chapter 8, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was born, I am, it got their attention. In fact, the next verse tells us they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. Now, to make such a claim was to make a claim of divinity. Say, before Abraham existed, I am. He was utilizing, leveraging that language that God said, I am who I am. And Jesus is saying, even before Abraham, I existed. I was. I am. I am eternal. I am God. And so they pick up stones to stone him because that's what the law required. It required a trial. They were willing to skip that, to part with that element of it, but it wasn't Jesus' time. He wasn't prophesied to die by stoning. He was prophesied to die by crucifixion, so it wasn't his time. He slips away. But he related himself to God, to Yahweh. He claimed that divinity. He claimed that he was God. And this is where Trinitarian theology comes in, the Trinity, that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all three at the same time, always. That God is the Father, God is the Son, God is the Holy Spirit, but they are distinct from one another. That's what we talk about when we talk about the Trinity. And Jesus is placing himself in that and declaring that. And a few days later, because... We're not quite sure where John 8 comes into play in the timeline of things, but by John 18, just a few days or 24 hours before his crucifixion, they come at him with clubs and torches in the garden in the middle of night, just as he's been praying with God in the Garden of Gethsemane. And we're told by John in John 18, 4 through 6, that Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, I am he, Jesus answered. And when Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, Jesus could have said a lot of things, but he chose to say, I am he, and their response in falling to the ground, which I'm sure they had no intention of doing, evidences their divine revelation of himself to them. 
Now, I think he said it with an authority and a gravity that their knees just buckled and they fell to the ground. They were in the presence of God. Now, I admire Jesus' maturity here because I think I would have kept on saying that. You know, these guys coming after me with clubs and torches, as soon as they got up, I'd say, oh, by the way, I am he. Boom, they hit the ground again. As soon as they get up and get dusted off and get ready to continue their lynching or whatever you want to call it, oh, by the way, I'm he. Boom, they'd hit the ground again. But Jesus is a lot more mature than I am, and he knew that didn't fit the moment, and he knew what was going to happen. That's right there in, chapter, in verse 4, knowing all that was going to happen to him. Now, three days later, at the empty tomb, when the women arrive in John 24 to prepare the body for burial, they don't find the body in the tomb. They find the tomb empty, and instead they see light, and they see two men like angels standing before them. And Luke records that in their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. That's good news. That's good news on May 21st. That's not just good news on Easter Sunday. That's good news every single day that you don't look for the living among the dead. He's alive. He is risen. He is the God of the living. And he has risen. And by that evening, in the upper room, he appears to the disciples who were hiding for fear of the Jews, we're told. They were hiding because typically what happened when the leader got crucified, you know who was next? All the followers. And so they're hiding in an upper room. They're afraid the door's been locked. And they were startled and frightened because Jesus appeared to them. And they thought they had saw a ghost. But he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts rise in your mind? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. I love the NIV, but man... King James Version on that verse is great. A spirit hath not flesh and bone, as you see I have. It's just a different, different feel to it, isn't there? But he wasn't just alive as a spirit. He was alive in a physical body. He appeared. He rose from the dead in a physical body. He made appearances over a 40-day period in that physical body. He told them, touch my hands, touch my side. If you need to put your hand in my side, in my flesh, like you said, Thomas, go ahead and do it. He ate meals with them. He was alive in a living body, and then he ascended into heaven and sent the Holy Spirit to be alive in us and through us. And there's a beautiful, beautiful song that kept coming to mind as I was preparing this message, and I finally decided, you know what, I just got to recite it to people. I'm not going to sing it because it's not really a song that's sung until the very end. If you know where I'm going with this, it's the song, He's Alive, by the Gaither Vocal Band, by David Phelps. It's a powerful song. I encourage you to look it up on YouTube. You're going to want to listen to it more than once. I'm going to do my best with it, but this paints the picture from Peter's perspective and why the fact that Jesus is alive matters so much. Listen to this. The gates and doors were barred and all the windows fastened down. I spent the night in sleeplessness and rose at every sound. Half in hopeless sorrow, half in fear the day, would find the soldiers crashing through to drag us all away. 
Then just before the sunrise, I heard something at the wall. The gate began to rattle and a voice began to call. I hurried to the window and looked down to the street, expecting swords and torches and the sound of soldiers' feet. There was no one there but Mary, so I went to let her in. John stood there beside me as she told us where she'd been. She said they moved him in the night and none of us knows where. The stone's been rolled away and now his body isn't there. We both ran toward the garden and then John ran on ahead. We found the stone and the empty tomb just the way that Mary said. But the winding sheet they wrapped him in was just an empty shell. And how or where they'd taken him was more than I could tell. Something strange had happened there, but what I did not know. John believed a miracle, but I just turned to go. Circumstance and speculation couldn't lift me very high, because I'd seen them crucify him, and then I'd watched him die. Back inside the house again, all the guilt and anguish came. Everything I'd promised him just added to my shame. But at last it came to choices. I denied I knew his name. Even if he was alive, it wouldn't be the same. But suddenly, the air was filled with a strange and sweet perfume. Light that came from everywhere drove shadows from the room. Jesus stood before me with his arms held open wide, and I fell down on my knees, and I clung to him and cried. He raised me to my feet, and as I looked into his eyes, love was shining out from him like sunlight from the sky. Guilt and my confusion disappeared in sweet release, and every fear I'd ever had just melted into peace. And then the music swells, and the choral voices come in behind, and they all declare together, He's alive! He's alive! He's alive, and I'm forgiven! Heaven's gates are open wide. It's a powerful song. And the truth that He's alive is not just for Peter. And the impact of him overcoming sin and death for Peter, for us, is the greatest event in the history of the world. It's the hinge of history. The resurrection changes everything. And not just on Easter Sunday, but every day, everything can be changed because he is alive. But that's not the end of the story. The New Testament letters add to our understanding of this God who is alive. Perhaps nowhere more clearly than in Hebrews 13, verse 8. And one commentary even suggests that this is sort of the central verse in the book of Hebrews. Because the whole book is about how Jesus is better. He's a better high priest. He's a better sacrifice. The new covenant is a better covenant. And it says in chapter 13, verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's eternal and unchanging, past, present, and future. He's eternally trustworthy as high priest, as the Son of God, as God himself, come to earth. And that commentary points out that yesterday means he was active in creation, which is a key theme in the book of Hebrews. In chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, it talks about everything was created through God and through Christ, and Christ is the exact representation of God. He's how we know God. Today, he's offering salvation. If you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. In chapter 4, and he is forever reigning 
in heaven, a key theme in chapter 10. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. You can count on him. You can count on him today. You can count on him forever. And last but not least, in the final pages of Scripture, in Revelation, John, writing to the seven churches in the province of Asia, opens with this greeting, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come. This God who is the same, who has always been, who always will be, and who is forever. Who was, who is, and who is to come. And then in the vision of the throne room of heaven, in Revelation chapter 4, he describes it this way. He says, Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under his wings, day and night. They never stopped saying, What? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. He is holy forever in the past. He is holy now. He is holy forever into the future. He is the God who was and is and is to come. It all comes full circle. This God who revealed himself to Moses, who Jesus represented perfectly during his life and ministry, who the New Testament writers point us to in the future. It all comes full circle. He is past. He is present. He is future forever. The bottom line today is that God is, period. That's the end of the story. He is. He always has been. He always will be. And this matters to us because those that would take an atheist worldview would view their lives as sort of like this string. It just happened to start randomly, collection of cells coming together. They can explain all that with biology, right? And at some point, those lives will end. And so we're just this little finite piece of string, so to speak, would represent our lives. But we believe something different. We believe that we are eternal, that we're going to be forever somewhere, and that our lives have a starting point, and then they extend into eternity forever, symbolized by this string here. And we believe, as believers in Jesus Christ, that there was a purpose for our existence, that God created us, that it wasn't an accident, that it wasn't by the will of man, John says, but it was by God's foreknowledge and decision. And that's why every life is sacred. And every life is precious. And we will live forever, somewhere. And so that's why this little black piece, which represents our earthly lives, our physical lives here on earth, matters so much. What we do with God in this span really matters. But we should keep our mind on eternity as we walk through this, so that we don't get too wrapped up in the things of this world that we forget that we'll be with Him forever in eternity. Now, to, if you can grasp that, it's important to understand that God doesn't have a start point like us. God's rope goes forever in that direction as well. He was, He is, He is to come. Not only is He eternal past, present, and future, but He is good. He is sovereign. He's the king, not just the king. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He is with you. He is for you. And he is working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. He keeps his promises. He loves you. 
He loves the whole world. And he came so that everybody who believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. So whatever your next step is today, maybe it's salvation. Maybe you're hearing this and you're coming to grips with it or to terms with it in a new way today or for the first time today. Maybe you're watching online today or at some point in the future. And you're hearing about this God who is alive, but not just alive, this God of love, this God who wants to be in relationship with you, who wants to forgive you, who wants to, you to spend eternity with him. And today you can reach out to him. You can experience salvation in him. You can experience salvation through the shed blood of Christ that you can confess your sins. You can accept his grace and forgiveness and you can spend eternity in a relationship with him. Maybe you're hearing about a relational God, a God who wants to live in us and through us through his Holy Spirit. And you want to respond to that. You want to step out of religion, out of I do things in order to get things from God or I do things in order to keep from getting punished by God. And you want to be in a relationship with him, a relationship that becomes the most important relationship of your life. And you want to step into a relationship with Jesus today. Then today can be the day that you make that decision. Today can be the day that you get more serious about that relationship, or today could even be the day that you make a public profession of your faith in Jesus Christ. We've got a young man who's going to be baptized in a few moments. It's going to be a great celebration. But we also have a table with a bunch of clothes that you could change into if today's the day that you're supposed to take the step and be baptized. we got towels, we got everything. I even wore a short sleeve shirt just in case. So if you want to be baptized today, if today's the day of the Spirit, something's welling up inside of you and you know, then meet me back there by those doors. And we'll have a short conversation, make sure you understand what's taking place, and we'll do that. He loves you. He loves you. Make room for Him to do what He wants to do in your heart and in your mind. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your love. We're so grateful that you are alive. That you have always been alive, you will always be alive. And that you want not only for us to live forever with you, but you want to live in us here and now. And you want to invade this world through us. You want to invade the hearts and minds of others so that they would know that there is a God who loves them, who died for them and who longs to be in relationship with them. Speak to us in these moments. Move in our hearts in these moments. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.